everybody, Ben Pakulski, Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I want to talk to you today about training, how to optimize training, how to make the most of the training you're already doing. So for the last 10 years, I've been the guy teaching intelligent muscle building around the world. And I want to give you some framings as to what makes my approach or maybe this intelligent approach a little bit different. So the way I break down exercise is really into three subsections. So you have what happens at the individual exercise level. So that can be reps and sets. And ultimately, exercise selection exists in there too. And then we progress to the entire workout. So what happens in that one workout that you're doing? And then obviously, we can progress into a program. So if you look at it in three levels, we're looking at an exercise level, a workout level, and a program level. And in order for you to optimize progress over time, ultimately, we need to ensure that we're optimizing every level of that program. So... Um, when we speak of optimizing something from an exercise level, I want to give you a simple framing that you can take into a workout that ultimately will make your workouts better, will make you, your results more effective and more efficient. So when we're looking at something from an exercise level, I have to make sure that a certain number of prerequisites are met. So what does that look like? So when I'm teaching exercise at, an, at the most foundational level, I want to make sure that someone has three letters checked to make sure every exercise is done correctly. S, S, I. And I talk about setup, stabilize, initiate. Those are the three levels of an exercise optimization. So if I'm choosing a squat, if I'm choosing a bench press, I'm choosing a dumbbell curl, it doesn't matter. How I set up my body relative to the resistance, the way the resistance is being applied against my body matters. It's extremely important. If you don't do that, what happens after that is never going to be maximally effective and efficient. So if you were to think about exercises applied against your body, it's only applied in typically one direction. It's called a vector. So how is that force being applied against your body and which part of my body is most effectively set up to oppose that? That's why I want you guys to think about that going forward. Uh, and then we look at stabilize. So as I've said a thousand times in the past, your body is going to govern muscle contraction based on stability. If you don't have great stability, your body down-regulates muscle contraction, meaning it's simply not going to recruit as many muscles. You'll never build as many muscles. So first we have setup to oppose the resistance, and we have stability. The more you can scale stability, the more muscle contraction you can have. Now, stability can happen inside the body, can happen outside of the body. You want to learn to scale both of those things in equal proportion. And the last one is initiate. Initiate with the working muscle. It's very, very important. Make sure the muscle you're training is actually the thing that initiates movement. So we contract that muscle as hard as we can without moving. And then we learn to, to contract through that. Use that contraction to generate motion and mobility. Now, all these things should be intentionally built into your program. So the way you choose exercises matters, right? The way you choose. So when it comes to, from a uh, perspective of stability, think about it. If I want to learn, if I want to train my ability to internally stabilize, which everyone should be doing very, very frequently, very, very early in the programming, uh, as far as whether you're a beginner, you want to make sure you're intentionally training your ability to stabilize. Well, that has to be built into the workout as well as externally stabilized. Because as you can imagine, uh, an externally stabilized exercise will probably get more Output will probably get more horsepower. So a good example is a squat versus a hack squat. Squat is incredibly internally stabilized. It requires you to be internally stabilized, whereas a hack squat can be incredibly externally stabilized. Now, it doesn't mean one exercise is better than the other. It simply means they're different. You need to know how to choose those and place those into your program. 
So we're going to move on from exercise level. I'll tell you a little bit more about this in a minute, but we're going to move on from exercise level to a workout level. So what matters most at a level of a workout in my eyes is exercise selection and ultimately volume, right? Total number of sets and reps. So exercise selection is massive depending on what you're capable of and what your goals are, how we select exercises is going to determine success and failure. And the reason I bring this up is because most people simply go in the gym and do what they like or do what they're good at or do what they're used to. That's a terrible approach. You have to learn to balance what you're good at and what you need, right? So if you're lacking mobility, you got to incorporate some type of exercises that increase mobility. And that doesn't necessarily mean stretching. That means something that's going to effectively progress your ability to get into the ranges of motion you want to train. Why? If I can't get into a range, obviously I can't train a muscle there. So I have to improve mobility. And mobility, from my perspective, is not just about, hey, I'm going to stretch. It's about learning how to engage a muscle from 300, or sorry, a joint from 360 degrees. I need to be able to stabilize a joint from all aspects, all sides of that joint. So the joint will learn to go into those ranges comfortably. The reason we lose ranges of motion is because our body senses instability, tightens up. So when it senses instability, it tightens up so we don't hurt ourselves. So when we want to improve mobility, we have to improve stability. Those things cannot be separated. So go to the ends of the range and learn to contract there, learn to stabilize there, learn to spend time there. These are all things that I intentionally build into my programs because I want to show you guys how to progress mobility. It's not hard. It's simple. It's not, it may not be easy. It may take time because ultimately your body has become the way it is as, as a default mechanism of saying, hey, this is where I'm most efficient and this is where I'm safe. And if we want to train our body to go outside of that, it's going to take time. It's going to take diligent, consistent practice. Um, and so the last level that I want to speak of is program level. So programming should have progress built in. So if you're someone right now who trains to ever, and there is an intentionality in the programming you have, you're not making maximum progress. You're simply leaving progress on the table. And even if, you're, if your goal isn't progress, it's simply maintenance, you still want to have something built in because ultimately the, your body is either building or breaking down. So having the uh, intentionality behind some level of progression, and that could be, and I'll talk about what systems can be progressed in a minute, but that could be in a number of different systems, right? So you can always be progressing something. It doesn't have to be, hey, I'm progressing and getting bigger. You always want to be progressing in some internal system, which I'll talk about in a minute. And, and the, the way you select what system, what stimulus you're, you're subjecting your body to in the gym is determined by what can my body recover from. So if you're someone who's really intentional about your recovery modalities and your, and your nutrition modalities, then you can be intentional about matching those recovery modalities to the type of stimulus you're subjecting to the gym. Example being, if I want to build muscle, that puts an increased requirement on my body's need for protein. So I need to make sure I'm willing and able to increase my protein intake. If I want to get stronger, I have to make sure I'm willing and able to increase my body's recoverability at the level of the nervous system, which requires protein, which requires fat, which requires additional rest and recovery. If I want to lose body fat, that's a very different type of stimulus to the body. I need to make sure my recovery modalities match that also. So there's the three levels of programming and ultimately the three levels of how we build progress. And I, I kind of mentioned them there without acknowledging it. It's the nervous system gets, can get stimulated, the muscular system or the energy systems. So the way our body produces energy, the rate at which our body produces energy. So those are the things that should be intentionally built in at the, the level of the workout and the level of the program. So hopefully that helps you guys start to understand how programming should be framed in your mind. Now, coming back just a second before progressing to the podcast, um, I want you to acknowledge that at the level of the exercise, your objective should be two things, mastery 
and intentionality. You guys have heard me talk about intentionality in the past quite a lot. My objective should be, I want to be unconsciously masterful of this exercise, meaning uh, unconscious competence. I don't think about it and my body just knows what to do. If you're not there yet, make that your objective. I want to be really, really good at doing this. And guess what that means? Never doing things mindlessly, at least in the beginning, right? We should always be mindful, intentional in the way we approach exercise and the way we approach everything in our life. If we're looking to improve our quality of life, we're looking to improve our quality of speech, our quality of relationships, our quality of business, our ability to to be effective humans. This can start with this intentionality in your workout. And hopefully all of you guys see how that line gets drawn. If I, you know, become intentional about the way I do a bicep curl, that forces me to be present. It forces me to be meticulous. Now that level of intentionality and meticulousness transfers into every aspect of your life. So just to summarize, before we get into this amazing podcast I have for you guys today, we're going to talk about the exercise level, mastery and intentionality. We're going to talk about the individual workout level, which is really focused around exercise selection and the type of stimulus you're subjecting your body to, whether it's a strength stimulus, a muscle building stimulus, or a fat loss stimulus. And the final highest level one is the program. There should always be progress built into the program. Now, there's a lot of different uh, ways you can build progress into into a program, but it's extremely complex. So when I sit down to build a program, people often uh, ask how long it takes to build, let's say, a six-week program, six-week training block. For me, it probably takes anywhere from six to eight hours, which is a really long time because there's so much that goes into it, right? It's like, how do these exercises complement each other? How do these exercises maybe not complement each other? So when I'm choosing exercises, I want to choose things that make, let's say I'm trying to get better at squat. I want to choose exercises around the squat or in between sets that make me better at a squat. Right? So I want to be intentional about choosing complementary or synergistic exercises that ultimately allow me to perform at a higher level. Anyways, guys, I wanted to start this podcast today with a little bit of info around that around that program because I think it's useful. And I'm going to try to bring you guys a little bit of useful information before we get into the amazing podcast guest today. Um, so hopefully if you enjoy this type of format, you enjoy this type of feedback, maybe a little bit of quick sound bites around how you can improve your efficacy, both in training and mindset and life and nutrition, all these things, uh, then I would appreciate you guys let me know. Uh, you can let me know on social. You can let me know in the comments on uh, iTunes, on Spotify, any of those places where you can leave me a review. I'd love to hear from you. Today's podcast is with Sal Stefano. Sal is a great friend of mine. You may know him from the Mind Pump podcast. Sal has recently written a book on why exercise, why weight training ultimately is the most effective modality to improve health and why we should all be striving for health during these incredibly unusual times. Sal is a wealth of information. He's really well-read. He's really articulate. We have a great conversation around his book and ultimately how to make the most of your training. So without further ado from me, enjoy the podcast with Sal Stefano. Individuals, but the vast majority of the people that I worked with we're just your, you know, run-of-the-mill mainstream America people interested in, in you know, getting healthier and, and looking better. And, uh, you know, one thing that was always uh, common, quite common when training regular people was just having to overcome the stigmas and the stereotypes and the misinformation that surrounds uh, resistance training. This was a, a much bigger problem when I would train women, but even with men. There was so much misinformation that surrounded resistance training and its benefits uh, for the the body, for health, um, and for fat loss. 
in fact, um, many people, many everyday average people wouldn't even place resistance training in the top three ways that you could lose body fat or prevent yourself from getting diabetes or balancing out your hormones or you name it. It's just not up there. Um, when people think of resistance training, they think of the extreme examples of resistance training, which are, you know, bodybuilders or, or strongman athletes. So it's just not uh, where it should be, where it actually belongs. And so the goal with the book is to talk to the everyday average person and to explain why resistance training is the one form of exercise that is best suited to counter all of the chronic health issues and problems that modern uh, living, modern societies create in us. Um, it's superior to any form of exercise. And, uh, and I do want to be clear as we have this conversation, all forms of exercise have value. But if you had to pick one, um, especially considering the context of uh, modern life or modern living, resistance training is just, it's head and shoulders uh, above the rest. Um, and so that's what I'm aiming to do is to get out there, talk to people, communicate it in ways where people go, oh, that makes sense. And, you know, I, I would, you know, my dream is that, you know, Mrs. Johnson on Sunday when she's having Sunday fun day with her friends and drinking wine and she says, you know, hey, tomorrow I'd like to start working out. Let's go grab a pair of dumbbells, you know. Um, so that's really my goal. Um, you know, there was a book in the 70s that was written on running. I think it was a complete book of running, if I'm not mistaken. In fact, if I show you the cover, you'll recognize it. It's, it's quite iconic. It's got like a red shoe on it with a leg and that book ushered in a, a running revolution. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but prior to the 70s, it was quite rare to see anybody running outside. Maybe if you lived in California, but even then it was quite, uh, it was quite rare. And that book comes out and everybody laces up their shoes and decides to go running. It, it created this kind of running revolution. Well, I'd like to start a resistance training revolution. And, and the good thing is that the benefits from this revolution will far outweigh the benefits of the previous one. In fact, uh, it'll counter a lot of the negatives that the previous one actually caused. Beautiful, man. So that's a, that, there's a lot of things that can, can kind of springboard off there as far as conversation, but I'd love to just have you start walking through. So what are some of these known benefits that you're talking about? And, and maybe we can get into the misconceptions Absolutely. as well. So depending how you want to approach that, you can go with, you know, hey, here's the benefits that people aren't talking about. Maybe it's like overcoming people's misconceptions to start. Yeah, no, that's a, a great place to start. So you know, when people think of resistance training uh, or weights, lifting weights, uh, by the way, resistance training is can be performed with any resistance uh, so long as it's performed in a fashion to where your the goal is to cause the body to build muscle and get stronger, right? So you can use body weight, you could use resistance bands, machines, and of course, uh, dumbbells, barbells, and just free weights in general, kettlebells, right? Um, so if when you ask the average person what they think about when they think of resistance training, they think of either a bodybuilder or a big strength athlete. They think of someone who's tight, uh, who might not have good mobility. You don't, they don't think of longevity or heart health. Um, they, there's a, again, there's a lot of misconception and I understand why we have these misconceptions, uh, popular media, the only depictions of resistance training that we ever saw, I mean, it really started, if you want to really go back, the, the mainstream depictions kind of started in the 50s and 60s with the Muscle Beach movies, right? And they'd have, you know, you got Larry Scott and Dave Draper uh, on the beach, and they were depicted as these big, dumb, stiff, self-absorbed people, right? Just looking at their muscles, not really caring about what's going on, not very smart. 
In fact, back in those days, uh, athletes, professional athletes were discouraged uh, from lifting weights. Uh, it was, they were told that they would be muscle bound. Please don't lift weights. It'll make you less athletic. Now, the good thing about sports, one thing that I love about sports is it's very objective. So the team that keeps winning, eventually everybody's going to say, what are you guys doing? And so now, here we are, 2021, you would be hard-pressed to find a single athlete in any sport that doesn't incorporate some form of resistance training. Even golfers now lift weights because they know it just makes you a better athlete. So one reason is the, the mainstream depiction. Um, and then, of course, you have Pumping Iron, the documentary, which you know, kind of went mainstream and, and so on and so forth. Um, the second reason, and this is a big one, was the medical community never really got behind resistance training because none of the studies that were done on exercise and health were ever really done on resistance training. I mean, if you go back a decade or even you know, two or even a decade ago, so 20, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, if you looked up studies on exercise and health, they were almost always done with some type of cardiovascular activity. So if they wanted to see how exercise affected cognitive performance or Alzheimer's or diabetes or osteopenia, osteoporosis, or, you know, testosterone or whatever. It was always, you know, we took, you know, 50 people and we had them do 30 minutes of vigorous cardiovascular activity, you know, four days a week or whatever. It was almost never, almost, there were almost no studies on resistance training except for athletic performance, uh, Olympic weightlifting type studies. The Soviets had a lot of studies on that. And here we had studies on athletic performance that started popping up in the maybe late 80s and 90s. But again, medical community had zero idea of the health benefits because there were no studies uh, that were done on it. So if you're a doctor and you're recommending to your patient whose blood lipids are off, their cholesterol is high, their blood pressure is high, you're going to tell them to go do cardio because that's what the studies have you know, supported or whatever. Well, over the last decade or two, we're now seeing studies that are coming out that are actually done on resistance training on uh, a lot of these health parameters. And what they're finding is, it's funny, it trips me out because it's blowing researchers' minds and doctors' minds away, but people like us who've been working in the space for so long, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not new information. What they're finding is not only is resistance training phenomenal for any health, uh, can, any health issue you can think of, in many ways, it's actually superior to other forms of exercise. Um, and uh, we can start with, uh, and by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll back up for a second. Some of the studies that are waking up the, current, the medical community today are the ones that are showing the correlation or the connection, I should say. Now it's no longer a correlation. The connection between strength and all-cause mortality. Yeah, okay. longevity. Oh, it's crazy. There are... You, you're actually hard-pressed to find a single test. There's, 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 it's hard to find a single test that's more accurate than a simple strength test for predicting all-cause mortality. Now, like of course, grip, grip test, right? Yeah. So yep. now, of course, uh, the most accurate would be a combination of tests, right? But if you had to take one test, right, blood pressure, cholesterol, whatever, and compare it to a grip test, or can you get up off the floor without holding on to something test? the strength test actually predicts all-cause mortality better. And that really opened up uh, the medical community's uh, mind. That really made them go, whoa, what is going on here? Uh, we need to look a little deeper. So let's start with first some of the common myths around resistance training, and then we'll look at what the research uh, actually says. So if somebody, if somebody were to say, um, 
what's the best form of exercise for flexibility? Okay. Nobody will say resistance training. Everybody's going to say yoga or stretching or whatever. Not me. Not you, right? Well, you yeah. know, right? You're, right. You're, but I'm talking about the average person. Yeah. Most people think resistance training produces stiffer bodies and reduces flexibility. Well, studies now show that resistance training not only is as good at increasing flexibility or improving flexibility as uh, other forms of, uh, of flexibility-based exercise, but it's actually superior for something called functional flexibility, right? Functional flexibility is having a range of motion but being strong and stable within that range right. of motion. So to give you an example, um, you know, I have a six-month-old son at home, right? Brand new baby. And if I put him on his back, I could take his legs and I can put him over his head. I can put him in the splits. I can do all kinds of stretching on him. He's extremely flexible, right? But he's very unstable, right? He's got no strength in that. So if I put load on him, I mean, heck, if I had him try and stand and do something, the, the risk of injury is quite high. Range of motion without strength is instability, and it actually uh, dramatically increases your risk of injury. What you want is you want ranges of motion that you have control in and that you have strength in. Full range of motion, proper resistance training is the only form of exercise that develops that. So it's literally the difference between, you know, can you sit in a squat with your back rounded and your knees collapsed and whatever, versus can you sit in a squat and then your kids can jump on your back and you won't hurt yourself? Or you sit in a squat and then Somebody's at the door, so you jump up to go grab the door and you don't hurt yourself, right? So resistance training now in studies is now proven, uh, what we've already known, to be a superior form of exercise for the kind of flexibility you actually need. Right. When done correctly, like it's important to asterisk that, right? Because most people are just going to go and they're like, oh, if I just do anything, it's going to improve. And that's uh, the opposite is true because like there's definitely a form of exercise that could make it make you tighter, which is what people historically see in these muscle-bound people who just ultimately don't understand how to train correctly. Right, right. Uh, and of course, by the way, when I talk about other forms of exercise, I'm also talking about them being done correctly. Any form mm -hmm. of exercise done incorrectly is, is worthless, okay? So, uh, so we'll just, we'll just kind of set that parameter, right? So I'm talking about uh, proper, appropriate, because um, every individual needs to train a little differently, right, for themselves. Proper and appropriate applications of all the forms of exercise that we're about to talk about, including resistance training. All right, let's talk about another one that, the, uh, that there's a myth around, which is heart health, right? Uh, if, if you ask the average person, you know, uh, what's one of the best forms of exercise to improve the health of your heart, reduce the risk of heart disease and heart attack, most people wouldn't put resistance training on the list. Well, studies now show that resistance training is actually a superior form of exercise for heart health. In fact, in head-to-head -head comp comparison with cardiovascular activity, Resistance training was superior. Now, where cardiovascular activity does well, and the reason why people think of it as heart health, is it does a good job of increasing endurance. And so we tend to attribute the heart to oh, yeah. endurance. Yeah. Now, the truth is, uh, training for lots and lots of endurance actually damages the heart. And actually, there's this actual kind of bell curve with, with cardio in particular, where some does improves your heart health, more actually increases your risk of yeah. of heart disease and heart attack because of the, 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 the calcium buildup that starts to occur in the heart. But when they do the studies on the organs and fat, including the heart, resistance training gets rid of this visceral fat more effectively than any other form of exercise. So yeah. it's, it's incredible for that. 
Yeah, one thing to think about, Sal, and I think most people don't understand this, is cardio is effectively the least efficient means of, ex- of expending calories, right? So if you, if you go, okay, why do we do cardio? People go, oh, I want to get my heart rate up. Well, what gets your heart rate up? Well, movement. Well, what causes you to move? Muscle contraction, right? So it's this really, really inefficient, low-grade muscle contraction dispersed over time that ultimately expends more calories and, and increases the CO2 excretion. Therefore, your heart rate goes up, your respiration rate goes up. So we're basically just if you were to compare the efficiency with which caloric expenditure happens during cardio relative to caloric expenditure during weight training, it's not even the same level. So you're so much more better off to pick a, you know, call it mid to low range weight training regime and apply that over time because you're effectively just getting more muscles contracting uh, in, in per unit time than just doing something like a bike or a treadmill or, or a stepmill or whatever, and therefore expending more calories uh, increasing the, the oxygen demand, decreasing the CO2 expenditure or increasing the CO2 expenditure. Therefore, it's just more efficient. So getting on a, like a leg press for a two-minute set versus getting on a, on a step mill or, or a treadmill for a 20-minute workout might start to equate calorically as far as the total expenditure over time. I'd love to see someone do that study to see where those things start to kind of equate because like efficiency of contraction with, with weight training is so much greater um, yeah. as far as expenditure. Yeah, actually, it goes even further than that uh, because uh, when we, the the old paradigm, and this is really what we're fighting, right? Is the is this paradigm of fitness that's just it's just false, it's wrong, and, and this is what the paradigm was, and this is the main the mainstream accept, accepted paradigm, which is, and we'll talk about obesity because obesity is the big like that's the big goal everybody has. We got to get rid of obesity, lose weight, and of course, obesity contributes to lots of other uh, chronic health issues, right? So. Okay, in order to lose weight, you got to burn more calories than you take in, or to put it differently, take in less calories than you than you output, right? So that ca- that energy imbalance is what causes you to lose weight. So the old paradigm was, okay, exercise burns calories. Let's pick the form of exercise that burns the most calories. That makes sense. Now, on its face, it does make fa- sense, right? Cardio for thirty minutes will burn more calories during the time you're doing it than almost any other form of exercise. But the problem is this. The problem is we're completely ignoring the big effects of exercise, which are what kind of adaptations are these exercises or these workouts causing in my body? Now, here's what happens with cardiovascular activity. And by the way, your body adapts, and I know you know this, but this might be more for the audience. The body adapts to exercise because exercise is a stress. And so what it does is it tries to get better at whatever you're doing so that next time the same insult doesn't produce the same amount of stress. So you go for a run and a quarter mile is exhausting and you can barely finish it and your body's stressed out. And so it tries to get better at running so that next time you can run a quarter mile and it doesn't cause stress. And then you go further and so on. So what does that adaptation look like? Well, here's what you're asking your body to do. I'm burning a lot of calories while I'm doing this activity. Okay, it's a, very, it's a very manual form of calorie burn. I have to do it, right? So I'm burning lots of calories while I'm doing it. I don't need a lot of strength. In fact, I need very little strength to do endurance work. Um, combine those two, especially in combination with the diet, if you're trying to lose weight. And what the body aims, it does is it tries to become a more efficient endurance machine, which means burn less calories. I, I'm trying, it's, it's, it would be no different than if we had a, uh, an artificially intelligent car that adapted to my driving behaviors. If I drove slow for long distances, my car would automatically 
turn itself into a, you know, a, a one-cylinder engine or some kind of a hybrid engine, right? It's trying to become efficient and good at what you're asking it to do. Doing lots of cardio literally slows your metabolism down. It literally makes your body a more efficient fat storing machine. Okay. And by the way, this isn't just my opinion, although I've observed this a million times. I mean, anybody who's ever worked out in gyms for longer than a couple of years knows what those cardio bunnies look like who just do cardio all day long and they have very small flabby bodies. Right. So, but the studies actually support this. In fact, there's this really, really interesting study I quote in the book where scientists went and studied a, a modern hunter gatherer tribe. They're called the, the Hadza tribe. They're in uh, Northern Tanzania. And what they did through pr some pretty sophisticated testing is they wanted to see how many calories they burned on a daily basis. And remember, these are hunter-gatherers, so they're, they're very active in comparison to the average Westerner. I mean, they're foraging, they're hunting, they're walking, they don't have TVs, they don't have electronics, they don't have couches. They're moving all the time. Now, what they expected and what they got were completely different. They expected this hot, the, these Hadza people to burn tremendous amounts of calories because of the amount of activity. But what they found actually was so shocking, they redid the study. What they found was that they burned right around the same amount of calories as the average Westerner. Now, at first you think, how's that possible? Well, these people are moving all the time and the average Westerner sits on their butt most of the time. But then if you really think about uh, evolution and how we all, for most of human history, humans evolved from hunter-gatherers, it makes perfect sense. It makes no sense for our bodies to burn 8,000 calories a day when food is very difficult to come by. We evolved to become better at what we do. And part of that is become efficient with calories. And that's what cardiovascular exercise does. So here's what weight loss looks like when cardio is your main form of exercise with weight loss. You initially lose weight and then you plateau real hard. And then if you, need to, if you want to lose any more weight, you got to cut your calories more or increase your calories more, or, or increase your cardio. By the way, studies show this quite clearly, several studies show, that the weight loss that you get from cardio plus diet is typically 50% muscle. So if you lose 10 pounds of weight and half of it is muscle, guess what? Your body fat percentage is the same. You're actually the same body fat, except now you have a slower metabolism and you're weaker and flabbier. So that old paradigm not only is false, it's actually caused people a lot of problems. Now let's look at resistance training, right? What are the primary forms of adaptation that resistance training So before, before we go into to, uh, resistance training, I do want to discuss this because it's important. I don't, I don't want to sound like we're poo-pooing cardiovascular training because it's so important, I think, and I'd love to hear where you go on this. Um, having a base level of aerobic fitness is imperative to performance. It's imperative to recovery. It's imperative to nutrient utilization and metabolic flexibility, right? So um, I think instead of just going, hey, you shouldn't do any cardio, which is the opposite, which is an incorrect paradigm, there needs to be some base level of cardiovascular slash aerobic fitness established because it decreases the time between workouts. It decreases the time between sets improves metabolic flexibility because the cells just become more efficient, efficient and effective at using calories. So there, there needs to be a balance because ultimately I want to be able to perform well. I need to be able to train hard and having some base aerobic fitness is literally the predecessor to me being able to, to increase my work capacity in the gym. Yes. No, I'm glad you said that. And I do want to say this real, uh, to just to be very, very clear, the perfect routine. Okay. The perfect workout routine is the one that I do. 
Yeah, that's right. Look at you. Um, now, the perfect routine for people who want to improve their health, longevity, have good, fit, healthy bodies, has a resistance training component, a cardiovascular component, and some type of a flexibility or mobility component. Totally. Very yep. clear. But now here's here's why it, here's why I'm talking about I'm talking the way I'm talking. If we look at the average person, okay, and this is in my experience, the average person, first off, they're they're very busy but very sedentary. Okay, so uh, we are very sedentary, but we're also very busy. Things are booked all the time. And the truth of the matter is that the average person, if they do everything right, if they develop a good relationship with exercise, if they find a way to be consistent what we can hope for at most is about two or three days a week of, of structured exercise. That's the yeah, truth. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Everybody else is a fitness fanatic and it's just the way it is. If I could get the average person to do anything consistently with exercise, what I, the most I could hope for is about two or three days a week with that little time being spent to exercise or even less, somebody does once a week. If they had to pick one form of exercise, the form of exercise they should pick is resistance training. Resistance training should form the base foundation of your exercise routine. Now, if you, if you have time and you exercise more and you're very health conscious and you're very smart about it, then you need to have other components for ideal fitness and health. But if, if my aunt comes to me and says, you know, I want to work out and I say, okay, well, realistically, be honest with me, how many days a week can you start now and do forever? And she says, uh, I'll be honest with you, Sal, I got once a week and you know, I got once a week, 45 minutes. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to have her do resistance training because it's going to give her the most bang for her buck. And, and here's some of the reasons why. I, I was getting into kind of the adaptations that resistance training, uh, you know, asks for, right? When you do resistance training, you're telling your body to get stronger and build more muscle. Now, the, the side effect of that is a lot of awesome stuff. Well, number one, I have a faster metabolism. Well, that makes it a lot easier to live in, in normal society where food is so plentiful and palatable, it's actually a, a, an advantage to have a fast metabolism. Maybe 5,000 years ago, it was not. But now, if I can burn the calories off because I have a fast metabolism, I have a buffer between me and inflammation and me and obesity and me and uh, chronic illness. The second thing, there is not, there's, there's nothing that's more protective uh, in terms of insulin sensitivity than muscle. In fact, Studies will show that regardless of body weight, so you can take someone who's severely obese, if they gain muscle, they become more sensitive to insulin. Now, why is this important? Well, of course, diabetes is a big problem, but insulin resistance is probably the root cause of a lot of our inflammatory chronic issues, and it's probably one of the main drivers of uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. In fact, both of those have been referred to as type 3 diabetes. This is why when you take someone who's Alzheimer's or, or dementia and you put them on a ketogenic diet, they have an improvement in cognition. It's not necessarily because the ketogenic diet is magical, but rather their brain is utilizing more ketones and less sugar because they're not, their body stopped utilizing it very well. Well, when you build muscle, I mean, muscle is one of the ways we store glycogen. Muscle is very insulin sensitive. Um, so you've got those benefits on top of it. Uh, bone mass it directly builds bone mass. Other forms of exercise are terrible at this. I mean, if you see uh, running, for example, you might see a small increase in bone mass in the lower extremities. You see zero for the upper extremities. In some cases, you see decreases. Let's talk about hormones. Um, resistance training is the only form of exercise that reliably raises testosterone in all men. 
whether your testosterone's low, in the middle, or high, you can pretty much expect, with proper resistance training, a boost in testosterone, along with an increase in androgen receptor density, which is, these are the, these are the locks that the testosterone key goes in and becomes and activates. The more androgen receptors you have, the more effective your testosterone is. Uh, it raises growth hormone uh, across the board, insulin sensitivity. In women, you see a balance of estrogen and progesterone. You see, over time, a lowering of cortisol. Now, other forms of exercise not only don't do this, but other forms of exercise have a tendency to do the opposite. In fact, I, there was a study that was just, I, I, I'll share it with you after, that showed that endurance uh, exercise, when, when people train for endurance, they pretty reliably will lower their testosterone levels. This is true for men. Now, someone asked me, maybe watching and thinking, well, why? I, I, you know, doesn't exercise make you healthy? And it's because resistance training is the only form of exercise that is pro-tissue. Other forms of exercise are anti-tissue. So not to keep hammering on cardio, but I, I'll, I'll talk about it because it's the most common form of exercise. Cardiovascular activity is anti-tissue. Your body tries to pare down muscle in order to become better at the cardio. Resistance training directly tells your body, we need more active muscle. We need more active tissue. Now, what hormones are needed for that to happen, right? If your body wants to build muscle, it's going to start doing things to uh, make building muscle easier. So in men, you'll see testosterone levels go up. In men and women, you'll see growth hormone levels start to rise and become more youthful. You'll see estrogen and progesterone balance out. You'll see cortisol start to flatten out or become a little bit healthier. You'll see insulin sensitivity increase because insulin is also an anabolic hormone. Well, if your body is wanting to decrease muscle, what hormones can get in the way? Testosterone, growth hormone, right? What hormones help your body get rid of muscle? Cortisol, which is what you tend to see elevated in people that make lots of cardio the cornerstone uh, of their routine. So, um, and, and there's so much more, man. It's just, it's so, it's so crazy to me how resistance training has been so stigmatized and yet how it literally is, obviously there's a formula for solving our health issues and there's a dietary component and a lifestyle component. And those are very important. I don't want to pretend like exercise solves everything, but the exercise component solution should be for the average person. I'm not even talking about for the guy or girl who wants to look jacked or whatever. Just for the average person, it should be resistance training. It does, it does everything better and more effectively. Right. One of the most interesting areas of, of focus for me lately has been this topic of myokines. Sal, I don't know if you've studied myokines at all, these secretory molecules that effectively uh, have direct signaling, signaling uh, effects to all different parts of the body that are specifically released when we train. And I think that to me is, is kind of the, the thing that pushes it over the line to convince people. So myokines, for the listener to understand very simply, are released um, from exercise from your muscles. That's why myo referring to muscle that uh, then causes direct signaling to the brain, signaling to the, the, uh, the vascular tissue, signaling to the muscle, signaling to all these different tissues throughout the body to express positive effects. And uh, this is a relatively new science that's kind of been in the last few years people have been looking at, but it's so fascinating to see all the different positive benefits from you know, BDNF, brain-derived nootropic factor, um, uh, VEGF, which is vascular endothelial growth factor, nerve growth factor, uh, IGF-1, MGF, all these different uh, growth factors being released from training specifically 
and then it has tissue specific responses. And, you know, for anyone who's kind of wondering about the, the truth and the efficacy of, of weight training, you just look up the term myokines and look at all the different vast benefits. And hopefully that pushes everybody over the top. Yeah, no, muscle's a good thing to have uh, in, in, if, to be healthy. It just is, uh, especially if you're doing it in a healthy way. Um, having more muscle is it's one of the best uh, buffers or uh, protectors against all chronic illness. I mean, even when they do studies on people who are bedridden, the more muscle you have, the more likely you are to survive being bedridden and the, the, the easier your recovery is, which leads me to something else. You know, when working in gyms, uh, I would always hear people say this, right? When they'd come and work out and I'd always hear this comment like, oh, okay, what, if, I, if I work out and get in shape, what happens if I stop? Do I got to keep working out? And of course, yeah, you do got to keep working out. There's nothing permanent. Uh, your body's always adapting. However, I will say this, resistance training is the most permanent form of results that you'll ever get. Now, here's why. This is very unique to resistance training. Muscle memory. Now, this is a very real thing. This is something that athletes have observed forever, bodybuilders have observed forever. In fact, if someone's watching right now, you might have experienced this yourself. If you've ever broken your arm or your leg, you take the cast off and it's like all your muscles gone. And then within a very short period of time, all that muscle comes back. Um, to, to highlight muscle memory and how powerful it is even further, let's say it took you, I don't know, let's say it took you 10 years to gain 20 pounds of lean body mass. So you, you worked hard. You trained your butt off. You ate right. You lifted weights. You trained whatever. And over a 10-year, by the way, 20 pounds of lean body mass for anybody watching is a decent amount of body mass to gain. And let's say over 10 years, you did it. You've gained 20 solid pounds of muscle. And then let's say something happens. You stop working out. You get injured sick. Maybe you get bored, whatever. And you stop working out. And you lose all 20 pounds of that muscle in three months. Gone. And then you decide, eh, I want to start working out again. You'll gain that 20 pounds back in like two months. It took you 10 years to gain it the first time. It'll take you a couple months to gain it back. And that's a very real phenomenon. And that's pretty much permanent. You know, as your muscles develop and grow, there's satellite cells that actually increase in number. Well, those don't tend to go away when muscles atrophy. So it's like your muscles, once you've built them, are primed. Now to be that way again later on, which is awesome because most people don't exercise consistently, you know, month in and month out. Most people take a time off, layoff or whatever. Well, isn't that great to know that you could work out and boom, you're right back with the metabolism, with the muscle, with those protective effects. Also, you know, strength and muscle, although your body will bring it down if you're not using it the negative adaptations are much slower than they are for other forms of exercise. You know, if, I, if I'm doing lots of cardio and burning lots of calories, the minute I stop doing it, that's it. There's my calorie burn is gone. With resistance training, it sticks around. It sticks around at least until my muscle starts to go away, which takes a lot longer. So have you seen any research around minimum effective dose? I'm sure there's got to be people out there going, I, I think I've seen a study recently showing like, hey, here's the minimum you want to do daily or weekly to either maintain or progress in the right direction? Because I'm sure for the audience you're speaking to, that's a very important question to be answered. Yeah, no, that's a great question. The problem with that is that there's such a huge individual variance when it comes to, uh, to just exercise results in general, how long they stick around, right? So you have, uh, to, to illustrate this a little better, right? You have like, I've never seen anybody in the real world 
uh, that's over seven feet tall, unless I went to an NBA game, right? I go to an NBA game, I see a bunch of seven feet tall people. But every everyday world, I never see anybody who's seven foot. That's how rare it is, right? Well, that's how extreme our genetics can be in one direction. And then you have on the opposite direction, you know, people who are three feet tall, right? So when it comes to how you respond to exercise or how you may build muscle, for example, you have the super rare, you know, uh, seven feet tall people and they have the people that are way over here. Obviously, pro bodybuilders are probably closer to over here um, and everybody else is probably closer to the other end somewhere in the middle. Now, that being said, okay, the muscle building signal um, is it's easy and consistent to send so long as you're doing something that's probably more than you're doing now. So if, you're, if you do nothing, if you're sedentary all the time, one day a week or two days a week is going to give you some pretty damn good results. And within those two days a week, there's a lot you can do to continue to progress your routine. Now, will you look like uh, the cover of men's health with a two-day-a-week routine um, in resistance training? I mean, unless you're one of those extreme genetic anomalies, probably not. But can you achieve a fit, healthy, relatively lean, not obese body? Will you uh, gain many of the benefits that we talked about with a two-day-a-week routine with resistance training? You will. But the, the better question is this. If you're only going to do two days a week of exercise, uh, there's nothing that will even come close to the benefits you'll get from resistance training anyway. So regardless of the amount of time that you spend, whether it's 30 minutes a week, once a week, or you know three days a week uh, for three hours, if you can only do that, um, you're going to get the, the biggest bang for your buck by far with uh, resistance training. Um, and again, that's the message. And by the way, the way I communicate it in the book, and I know we, we're talking you know, at somewhat higher levels, but I'm, I really communicate in the book like I'm talking to the average person. And, and what I'm trying to do is if you're a fitness fanatic or a fitness coach or a trainer, you know, I'm probably not saying anything that's revolutionary to you, although I may be putting it in a way that makes it easy to understand. The book will arm you uh, to be able to communicate this to family members, friends, your clients. It's going to give you a way to be able to tell these people, hey, uh, here's some of the reasons why this, this is the way you should be working out. The obstacles people are facing, Sal, one that comes to mind is appetite. A lot of people have uh, a strong appetite. And I'm curious if you came across any research comparing the effects of resistance training as compared to cardio and appetite. So I know I've seen some things anecdotally. I know I've seen some research. I'm curious if you have any specific things that came up for you. Okay, the only research I've ever seen on exercise and nutrition is that when people work out, they tend to be more self more uh, self conscious and aware of the food that they eat. So, you tend to see this effect where people tend to eat healthier when they stop start exercising. I haven't seen any specific studies on resistance training. Anecdotally, again through my experience, I've, I've probably trained uh, thousands of people, at least uh, many personally and many uh, by proxy. Resistance training will pretty consistently raise your appetite. Um, uh, other forms of exercise, probably not. And again, it's through the pro-tissue effects of uh, resistance training. And this is not a bad thing, okay? Um, someone watching me, oh my gosh, I, I, you know, I already eat too much. Well, your metabolism is also going up quite a bit. And I used to love hearing this from clients who you know, would train with me and, and they would trust what I was saying, especially my female clients who we're so resistant to, you know, doing anything with, with dumbbells or barbells because they don't want to get big or whatever. And, and I, you know, luckily I'm convincing and I'd tell them, you know, the deal and we'd talk about it and they'd trust me. And I would love it. For, you know, three months, six months into the, you know, workout or whatever, I'd hear this like, 
you know, this is really weird, Sal, but I'm getting leaner and I'm eating like way more. This doesn't make any sense to me. Like what the hell is going on? Yeah. And I'm like, you're you're burning it. Your body is burning it. By the way, it's a great position to be in. You know, um, I I wouldn't want to live in America and have in, in, you know, gain weight on over, you know, 1500 calories a day. Well, that would be a tough, I'd have to have a lot of discipline to live that way. And I'm, you know, you can do it, but that's really difficult. I'd much rather be able to eat 3000 calories a day and, you know, maintain a, a relatively lean body. Yeah. Where my brain goes there on that salad is like cortisol response, right? So if you look at someone doing aerobic training, uh, as compared to some type of weight resistance training, and if you look at glute four, so like effectively, um, glucose management, right? Call it blood sugar management. Um, I'm going to speculate and probably with a high degree of accuracy that resistance training will actually be better. And it could be wrong, be better for uh, glucose disposal, right? So you're going to get more glute four transport, therefore better glucose management than you would with, with cardio just due to less glute four activity on cardio and more cortisol secreted, secreted typically on long duration cardio. So that's where my brain goes on appetite. So it's actually, I was thinking the opposite of what you're saying. So I've historically seen people who do high amounts of cardio to get more of an appetite increase and people who do weight training tend to feel a little bit better after weight training and not have the same um, kind of ravenous appetite. Yes. You know what you're okay. Now here, there's this, there's a difference that we're talking about here. Now what you're talking about are people who do a lot over, especially people who abuse cardio is the cravings. Now cravings is different than appetite. This is very uh-huh. different. We've all experienced this. It's like ravenous. I got to eat whatever. And in fact, the foods that you tend to be attracted to tend to be the foods that spike serotonin that tend to be hyper palatable and tend to give your body this quick energy, starches and hyperpalatable starches and fried foods and those types of things. That's very different than a healthy appetite. Yeah, no sure. craving. You're absolutely right. In fact, uh, if you over, if you, if you, you can even do this with a resistance training. If you just overdo it, you'll go home and find your, your, your cravings go through the roof. No, but over time, what you'll find is a healthier appetite with resistance training, but you're absolutely right. Overstress the body and you tend to see those cravings and, and that, actually can be true for any ways of stressing your body, but especially with cardio. And as far as glucose transport is concerned, I mean, look, we store glycogen primarily in the liver, but there's another place that we store glycogen. It's our muscles. Increasing the storage capacity for sugars, I mean, that's a good thing. That's part of the reason why uh, when you you build some muscle, and by the way, I I want to be very clear here. You don't need to build a ton of muscle for a lot of this to happen. Um, it's not, and I know there's studies because I guarantee there's gonna be someone who's gonna say, uh, I saw a study that showed that one pound of muscle only burn an extra, you know, 10 calories a day or whatever, which by the way, okay. Even if that were true, uh, you know, burning 50 more calories a day from five pounds of muscle on its own without having to do anything. is pretty fucking awesome. But let's, 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 let's address that for a second. It's not so clean cut, right? The metabolism extremely complex. It's actually the second most complex thing that we know about uh, besides the human brain. Very, very complex. And there is lots of room between efficiency and, and inefficiency when it comes to calories, right? So I could take somebody and make them burn more calories naturally without even gaining a single pound of muscle just by changing the way that their body views its environment, by, uh, by telling the body that it's okay to burn more calories. And I could do the opposite. I could have somebody could slow their metabolism down without losing a single pound of muscle. So there's, there's a lot of room within that. And the, when you do resistance training, what you're typically encouraged to do, what I encourage in the book, many cases, 
is to do resistance training. And especially if you're obese or overweight, and especially if your metabolism is already slow, as I say, don't cut your calories yet. Let's build some muscle. In fact, I might even have you bump your calories a little bit. And what I'd like to see, here's what I love to see, is I like to see my clients lose zero pounds in the first couple months. I want the scale to not move at all. I'd like to see fat go down, but I'd like to see muscle go up as well. But that requires some extra calories. And you do see that increase in calorie inefficiency, or at least the the body's burning more. And there's a lot of, you know, there's lots of explanations for this. It could be through heat or just through other methods, but the body's pretty remarkable in this case. I mean, you you have the cases of like POWs who, you know, they lived off of, you know, hundreds of calories a day for years. And I know they lost lots of muscle and all that stuff, but it doesn't make sense if you think about it, but it, it does when you realize the body can really swing one way or another. And again, resistance training is part of the, the, the formula. It, it really does encourage the body to just burn more calories, both through the building of muscle, but also just through the signaling process itself. How much of the book do you get into actually like mechanistically what people should be doing? So, so I know you're getting into the idea of like, hey, here's why it's important. Do you start do- walking them down the path of like, hey, here's first steps to take to start you know, ultimately creating an efficient plan for you? Absolutely. So I cover nutrition in there. Um, I do cover exercise. I do give people workouts. Now the workouts in the book are definitely designed for everyday average beginner people, or I would say beginner to intermediate uh, at most people, right? So uh, I have three workouts in there. One is body weight with resistance bands. The other one is with dumbbells only. And then the next one is with the home gym with barbells um, and dumbbells. And I explain everything, sets and repetitions and tempo and why it's important to rest in between sets. This is always a common issue. You hear from the average person, well, like, why do I get a rest? I'm supposed to be moving, you know? And, you know, so I explain why the rest is just as important as the set and, uh, in, in terms of the adaptations that we're asking the body. With nutrition, um, I focus a lot on the behaviors that lead to um, eating better and less on the, I do explain the, the, the mechanisms of, uh, of diet that helps with fat loss and health, but I don't, I spend most of my time on the behaviors. And that's just uh, because knowing the mechanisms and not working on the behaviors uh, is a failing strategy. We've known this forever. I mean, calories and macros, everybody can look up on Google calories and macros and they can cut their calories and it just doesn't work. So I focus a lot on, you know, where you're coming from, the behaviors that lead to better nutrition, how to achieve balance with your diet in a natural way, not in a way that's, that's forced. Um, and again, these are, these are ways that I found to be extremely successful. With respect to creating a successful workout experience, what are, what's something you wish everyone knew that they don't? Um, okay. So I'll, I'll tailor this for your audience because, uh, your, your audience is probably, uh, much more well-informed than I would say the average person. So I'll give them something valuable here. Um, the benefit of, uh, priming, uh, before your workouts versus the standard warmup. Um, tremendously different. I mean, the value is, is huge, right? So the old understanding of warming up was, you know, warm up the body, literally get more heat in the body, which makes muscles more pliable um, and less stiff, which it's, it's funny because uh, as an early trainer, when I heard this, I would imagine that muscles were like, were like rubber bands, right? Like if you take rubber and you warm it up, it gets real stretchy. And if you make it colder, it gets real stiff. That's actually not, that's not what happens uh, with your body when you warm up. It's not that the, the muscles themselves really haven't changed much. What you're really changing is your central nervous system and how it's communicating 
to your muscles. So if you do a, a static stretch, for example, and you find that within 30 seconds, ooh, my hamstrings are getting more flexible. What's really happening is your central nervous system is, is, uh, is, is lessening the signal to the hamstring and allowing it to relax. So it's giving you more, more range of motion, right? So the traditional warm-up is warm up the body, moving the body, and really didn't matter how you warmed up the body, bike, treadmill, jog in place, whatever. Better than nothing. Better than nothing because some movement turns on the central nervous system, whereas no movement, you know, kind of keeps it dampened. Um, static stretching, um, except for specific cases, terrible way for most people to warm up, actually uh, can increase risk of injury. It decreases the signal that the central nervous system actually sends to a muscle. So the reason why you get more flexible with a static stretch is because the central nervous system actually weakens its signal. It's the exact opposite of what you want when you're working out, right? You want a strong signal, not a weaker signal. Otherwise, uh, you create more instability. Um, so with priming, what you're trying to do uh, in priming in an ideal situation is individualized. So for your body. So you would know if you had forward shoulder or if you had an anterior pelvic tilt or if you had issues with scapular retraction or depression or whatever. Uh, or maybe you're a bodybuilder and maybe your issue is less function and more feel like, oh, I don't feel my glutes when I squat or it's hard for me to feel my chest when I incline press or whatever. Priming allows you to, or, or encourages your central nervous system to fire in a way that's more effective, in a way that's more solid, uh, that allows you to connect to greater ranges of motion. So to give you an example, um, Let's say uh, we'll use a hamstring stretch as an example. This is a lousy way to prime, but it just highlights what I'm talking about. So static stretch would be I'm sitting on the floor, legs out in front of me, and I'm just stretching my hamstring. A, a more priming way would be I get into that stretch, and then when I'm there, I fire the hamstring, and then I fire the hip flexor, and then I fire the hamstring. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to connect to a greater range of motion so that when I do my squats or whatever and I go deep, my CNS is primed and ready and in control. I'm already connected uh, to those things. Is that position specific, Sal? So are you doing it, you know, in the lengthened range or the shortened range, or, or do you find it tends to translate uh, tissue to tissue length specifically? Yeah, both. So uh, when I'm looking at feeling a connection, um, I like to prime people in the shortened range. So let's say I get somebody who is, uh, I get a female client and she's like, oh, I do squats. I, I feel it in my quads. I don't feel it in my glutes. So what I may have her do is do a, a hip bridge and we really focus on squeezing the butt at the top really, really hard and do a couple sets there. And then when she squats, now she can feel the glute muscle that she just connected to and she can change her form however so slightly to activate the glutes a little bit more, right? From a functional standpoint, typically what you're trying to do is you're trying to uh, connect to the end ranges of motion because that tends to be where we lose our stability, right? So, you know, halfway, halfway in a, in a shoulder, you know, overhead press, most people halfway up are okay. They're pretty connected. Maybe there's some core issues or whatever, but if they lose connection, it's probably at the top or at the bottom, a squat, you know, also that's where, you know, at the bottom is where people's forms tend to go off. So I would take someone, I would prime them in those end ranges of motion so that when they're doing their exercise and they're doing the full range of motion exercise, uh, they're much more connected. So it's just a very effective way of warming up. It doesn't take very much time to five to 15 minutes of, of targeted priming and you jump right into your set and it's like, boom, I feel like I've already done five sets of this. You know, I feel great. 
Yeah, man. I think my audience will be very familiar with that. It's something I've been teaching since like 2011 in my programs. Um, so it's, you know, my, most of my audience who've gone through my stuff um, would do it. My, my only um, maybe difference would be my focus is always short range, mm. um, never lengthen range. And uh, not that I think it's wrong to lengthen range, but so when something is lengthened, it tells me that something else is shortened. Yeah. So specific to hamstring, obviously when we're bent over, the hamstring is lengthened, but the hip flexor is shortened. So then I would just focus on the short end of the range. And so the exact same application, just, uh, you know, maybe a different way to explain it, man. But I think it's probably the most powerful thing you can offer someone to improve baseline position, improve activation of the muscles. So you can feel it, therefore connect better and, and hopefully maintain tension throughout time. Oh yeah. You do, you know, if you do proper priming and proper resistance training, which all the workouts I, I give in the book include, you know, one or two priming movements, uh, that I, that I feel are generally applicable to the, to the following workout. If you do that plus full range of motion, you know, good control, right. Appropriate resistance training, you're going to get great functional flexibility and mobility. You're going to get great control over these ranges of motion, good rotation, good extension, you know, you're going to be able to do split stance movements and squats and all that other stuff. And, you know, again, I think of the average person that I see walking around, you know, at the grocery store or whatever. And it's like, man, they could really benefit from some of that functional, uh, you know, flexibility and mobility. Yeah. Do you think that, um, you know, let's say, you know, for a beginner, we'll assume that weight training in some level will be enough as far as to improve the range of motion. Someone starts to train a little more consistently. Do you think weight training alone is enough to improve their mobility or do they need to include a specific mobility regimen? It depends on what you're looking for. If you want enough mobility and flexibility where you can live a normal life and not worry about hurting yourself, um, then you're fine. If you want to go beyond above and beyond that and really challenge yourself, um, then yeah, you're going to want to add uh, more targeted mobility work. You're going to want to add more priming movements, maybe even do priming sessions where it's just, you know, that alone. But again, I, and I'll go back to what I said before, an ideal program, if, if we lived in a perfect world, I mean, if I could snap my fingers and have everybody just do what I say, the base of everybody's routine would be resistance training, but I would have a good cardiovascular component, which would probably look a lot like walking. It would probably look a lot like lots of walking. And, and there's a lot of, you know, I have some pretty good reasons for that. One of them is it's about the only thing that people can repetitively do that they know how to do. I, 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 if you tell the average person to go run, nobody knows how to run anymore. It's, it's terrible because of shoes. It, it's, it's just, yeah. and that, I mean, we just don't do it. I mean, the last time most people ran was when they were 10. It's a skill. Once you lose that skill, you know, the, the last thing you should do is go run to fatigue because you already have terrible technique and then you get tired, which makes it worse. Right. Um, this is why running is one of the highest risk uh, categories uh, of exercise. So yeah. walking at the very least, I know the average person can walk. Plus it's conducive to, you know, just regular life. And so typically what I'll tell people to do is, hey, um, instead of doing a, a dedicated 30 minute walking session, uh, you know, every day or whatever, I'll say, let's do this. Let's attach. And I talk about this in the book, you know, on the behavior piece. I'll say, let's attach this movement to uh, something that you already do. So that's already ritualized. So I'll say, okay, so instead of doing a 30 minute walk and scheduling it, why don't you walk for 10 minutes after breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And uh, that tends to be something that people tend to be able to stick to because it's part of something that they already do. Um, and then as far as flexibility and more mobility is concerned, 
you know, ideally, to be honest with you, I mean, I could definitely, you know, see value in people doing targeted, you know, mobility sessions, you know, maybe 30 minutes twice a week or whatever. But honestly, I would tell people to go out and play. I, I mean, really, that's one of the best ways to focus on that is go play with your kids at the park, go, uh, you know, go, go paddle a board, go swim in a lake, um, you know, in the, in the perfect world, that's how I would recommend it. But yeah, the, the base would be resistance training just because it's just, I mean, man, if, again, if we look at all the stuff that we're just, we're dealing with, because uh, we have such unique health issues today. I mean, they didn't exist a hundred years ago. They're just so unique. And we're, we're so, the, the medical community is so poorly positioned to address it. We have no solutions. The fitness industry actually has the solutions. The problem is we haven't been communicating it properly. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say, hey, look, we actually have the answer. It's not what you think. It's this form of exercise that you have always thought that was the wrong form of exercise for you. This is the one you should do. And this is, you know, this is the part of the formula for solving those problems. What's something you do now, Sal, that, uh, you know, in your, in your older age that you didn't do previously? Oh, geez. That's, that's easy for me. I, I placed almost no value on spiritual health uh, when I was younger. None at all. I, you know, when you, um, here's one of my favorite things about fitness. In fact, you and I have talked about this before. Um, it was, it was, you, all, you echoed the same thing. One of my favorite things about fitness is it's a very unassuming, uh, for lack of a better term, sneaky way into personal growth. Uh, it's, it's unassuming and, and sneaky because very few people start a workout and say to themselves, I'm going to focus on personal growth, right? Most people, I just want to look better. I want to look better. I'm going to go to the beach. I want to look sexy. So I'm going to start working out. Now, if you stick with it long enough, uh, it's because you find value in it. You, you love it. You see what it does for you. You start to value the journey. This becomes, after working out consistently for five or 10 years, you start to realize the value in the journey. You start to enjoy the workouts just for the workouts themselves. And the side effects become all these great results, but it's all about the workout and you enjoy that. And then you start to get to this place where you're like, you know, I, I want to continue improving myself. Uh, this is uh, the, the lessons I've learned through exercise, you know, like, you know, being okay with failure, right? Uh, being okay with sucking at stuff because you suck at everything you, the first time you do it, especially when you work out. Um, you know, the relationship you create with pain, right? You develop a different relationship with pain. All of a sudden, you know what good pain is. If you don't work out, you don't know what good pain is. It's all bad, right? Um, the consistency part, right? The, the journey, the value in the journey, like these are all personal growth uh, vehicles are very, very effective and powerful. So you, you stay on this journey, then you start to realize, you know, like I started out like this, man. I was like, uh, you know, work out and diet to look shredded. Like I want to look awesome. Right. So it's like, you know, lift weights, take supplements and, and look at my macros. Right. And then it became, yeah, you know what, I'm going to work out and eat to improve my health. I need, I, I want to improve my overall health. And then it became, there's more to health than just uh, diet and exercise. Um, and then I started looking at my relationships with the people around me, um, how I am with my kids, the time I spend with them and what that provides in terms of health. And then eventually you end up in spirituality. Eventually, that's, I, I almost feel like that's the last place that people who enter into fitness reach because that's the one that is at the top of it all um, because you end up getting closer and closer to the source. But then you look at spirituality and what spirituality does is it's that 40,000 it's that foot view of everything. 
And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's what gives why we live meaning and what we do meaning. And it, uh, it, it contributes to all of that, but it takes, took me a while to get there and it could be organized religion. It could be meditation. I think it's, you know, uh, Arthur Brooks said it best. He's a, a expert on happiness. Great guy. He said, it's, uh, it's basically just asking why, why we're here and looking at the big pictures is you do that enough. He goes, that's, that's really a big part of the formula when it comes to happiness. And I love that. And uh, I think we should end on that note because that's a great, great segue into you telling everyone about how to reach you, where you can get the book and about the podcast. Thank you. Um, so the book you can find anywhere that sells books um, or you can go to theresistancetrainingrevolution.com. Um, you can find me on my podcast, Mind Pump. So we're on all uh, podcast platforms. Or you can find me personally on Instagram at Mind Pump South. Amazing, man. Thank you so much for being here, buddy. And thank you for writing this book. And so one thing I will tell you that's really interesting is I'm actually part of a company that's launched recently to attempt to bring basic resistance training to the average person. And I'll share that with you more after the call, but I think it's going to change the world, man. I think it's going to be revolutionary and it's it's giving people access in an affordable way to high level coaching or personal training. And um, I'm really looking forward to what that brings. And we should be ready to launch around fall um, and I know we're going to have a, a huge influx of both coaches and clients, man. So I'm pumped about that. And I'll definitely share more with you in the future because it sounds like we're on the same uh, on the same journey. Oh, man, that's exciting. Awesome. I can't wait to see it. Cool, brother. Thanks for being here, Sal. Thank you. And that's a wrap, ladies and gents, boys and girls. Sal Stefano, The Resistance Training Revolution. Head over to Amazon now to pick up his book. If you want to understand the no cardio way to burn fat and age proof your body in only 60 minutes a week. Now, is that true? I don't know. It's going to come down to how effectively and how efficiently you train, you progress. Uh, I really love this conversation with Sal. Sal's a great guy. He's, he's a great friend of mine from the Mind Pump podcast, as you guys have heard. And uh, if you haven't already checked out their podcast, definitely do so. Uh, if you remember back to the beginning of the podcast, when I told you a little bit about the individual exercise level, the workout level, and the program level, I want to offer you guys the ability to join one of my amazing programs that I've spent months and months and years and years building and improving and perfecting. If you haven't already joined one of my programs, head over to hypertrophymastery.com and sign up now because that is where you're going to find incredibly well-designed workouts, all the videos you need to be successful to learn mastery, and most importantly, how to do it for your body. We put a lot of time and effort into designing that program so that you can ultimately learn every level of mastery of body and mind. And it's one of my best-selling programs ever, and we constantly look to improve it, and we're always looking to bring new and exciting aspects to your health and training. So uh, head over to hypertrophymastery.com to pick up that program now, guys, and I know you will love it. I can't wait to get all your feedback. And thank you all for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I truly appreciate your time and your feedback. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a five-star review if that's what you think we deserve, because that ultimately is what drives this podcast to get the best guests in the world and continue to assist you in living your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Have an amazing day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. 
This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.